Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Oh, the shark, baby. Has such teeth there, and it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heath, babe, and it keeps it uh, out of sight. You know when that shark bites, well it's teeth. So welcome everybody to another episode of Macklin's Take with me, Andy Clark, and Matt Macklin with you as always. I hope everybody's well. It looks like there could be some brighter days heading our way, if you believe what you see in the news over the last few days. That would certainly be very, very welcome. So as I say, I hope everybody's just hanging in there and managing to stay entertained. And to that end, hopefully these podcasts are, are facilitating in that in that endeavour uh, people certainly seem to be enjoying the Big Fight Deep Dive that we've introduced over the last few weeks, where we have a really detailed look at big fights from, from boxing history. We owe Brian Dugan uh, a vote of thanks for this, really, because we got into this off the back of speaking to him about his book about the super fight between Marvin Hagler and Sugar Ray Leonard. And people seem to enjoy that, that kind of forensic approach. So we've tackled it the last few weeks with Mike Costello looking at Floyd Mayweather against Ricky Hatton last week, Big Buncey on talking about Nigel Benn against Chris Eubank. And there was one fight which we were always wanting to do when we started doing this. We were looking at fights that we thought just could not be missed out. And one of them was also in 1990, earlier in the year than Ben against Eubank. It was then, is now, always will be, I will say, the greatest upset and one of the most dramatic events in boxing history, possibly the greatest upset in all of sporting history. It took place in Tokyo and it saw Mike Tyson, the undisputed, linear, invincible, 37-0 heavyweight champion of the world, defending his titles against James Buster Douglas, who came in at odds of 42-1 to ahead of that fight. It's difficult really to explain just what a huge 
underdog he was. He wasn't even an underdog. According to most people, he wasn't even really in the fight at all. A lot of bookmakers in Vegas wouldn't even take money on him. People weren't interested in betting on him. He was written off and dismissed in a way that when you look back at the fight now, particularly, of course, when you know what happened, but but even when even when that's the case, it's kind of incredible to see just how disrespected he was heading into the fight. People, a few years beforehand, after his defeat against Tony Tucker for the IBF Heavyweight Championship, had dismissed him as, as a choker, as a coward in, in some quarters, as a, as a bottler, as we would say in the UK. And when he got this fight against Tyson, I'm not underestimating here, people were irritated by it. They didn't want it. They wanted to see the fight between Tyson and Holyfield. They didn't understand why they couldn't just go straight to that fight. Why was Don King milking it yet further? After he beat Michael Spinks in 88 Tyson, and then he beat Bruno, then he beat Carl Williams. They wanted to see that fight with Holyfield. They were even more irritated by the fact that it was going to be in Tokyo. Networks and and, and publications, some of them didn't even send their correspondence because they didn't feel they could justify the expense to watch what was going to be, in their eyes, a 90-second uh, annihilation. Uh, and right at the start of the HBO broadcast, Jim Lampley turns to Larry Merchant when he's introducing Merchant and says, Larry, what are we about to see? A 90-second annihilation of another ill-prepared op- opponent, uh, to which Merchant basically agrees. And that there's a tale about Ed Schuyler of the Associated Press, who did go over to the fight. And whether this is apocryphal or not, I'm not sure, but... Apparently, he was stopped at customs and asked, what are you doing in Japan? And he said, I'm here to work on the Tyson-Douglas fight. And the official said, how long do you expect to work? And he turned around and said, well, I don't know, probably about 90 seconds. This is the kind of vibe that was around this fight. Um, I did say that everybody wrote him off and that nobody gave him a chance. That's not quite true, because there was one man who did give him a chance. The only man in the press pack, in fact, to pick him to win the fight. Uh, and I'm delighted to say he, he joined us on Macklin's Take today. His name is Tim May. He had a 42-year stint at the Columbus Dispatch, which was Douglas's local paper. He was ringside in Tokyo for what was an extraordinary, extraordinary occasion. Uh, and Tim, 30 years ago now, uh, thanks for thanks for doing this, for, first of all, but 30 years ago now, how, how, fresh, are the, how fresh are the memories still? Still pretty fresh, and uh, then when you're uh, you're reading off your intro there, and I'm I'm getting sort of like chill bumps thinking about it because uh, you're right. I mean, uh, at the at the time, it seemed like impossible to everybody except people who were in the the Douglas camp. You know, they uh, John Johnson, his manager, fought for this fight. Pardon the pun. <laughs> you know, for years with uh, Don King, and you know, in the Tony Tucker fight, I would uh, amend. The summary of that, in one in one regard, it did go ten rounds, but uh, Buster, in essence, kind of ran out of gas in that fight more than anything else. But it was a it was a pretty pretty good fight. It was a better fight than than Mike Tyson and companies were putting on at that point. I think on on that undercard or on that overcard, uh, uh, Mike Tyson knocked out Pinklin Thomas <laughs> with one of the he knocked him across the ring with one of the great left hooks I've ever seen. Uh, and Pinkle Thomas, by the way, is a grown man. And, oh yeah. Yeah. Mike Tyson looked invincible. Uh, and Buster Douglas and his group, though studied him. They thought they had a shot at him if Buster got in shape and he did. I'm not going to give you the whole background of that at this point, but, uh, Buster Douglas got in the best shape of his life. 
was inspired by several things, including a, finally a shot at Mike Tyson, inspired by the fact that his mom died uh, three and a half, four weeks before that fight. He still took the fight anyway. And, uh, and then, you know, everybody said he had no shot. And you, everybody saw what happened after that. So how far back do you go with the with the Douglas family? Because Dad Bill obviously was a, was a middleweight and light heavyweight of a pretty fearsome repute um, before before Buster uh, came along. So when was the first, when when did you first when did you first meet a young a young Buster Douglas? Yeah, well, Bill's nickname was Dynamite. So <laughs> there you go. Uh, he could knock people across the ring himself. But I met uh, Buster. I actually remembered. Uh, being around him because I covered, uh, helped cover a state championship uh, uh, basketball team back in 77, I think it was, Lyndon McKinley. And he was on that team. It was a, I think it was a sophomore or junior. He didn't play a whole lot on that particular team. but uh, So you knew about him then, but then I got to know him as a fighter uh, later when his dad, uh, Buster, tried a few things in his life, including going to junior college. And finally he decided, you know, Maybe I should be a fighter like my dad. And his dad brought him to the Columbus Dispatch and introduced him to me. <laughs> he called his dad, Bill, du- Bill Douglas, called Buster his big baby. And uh, Buster was already a big man at that point, 6'3", 6'4", uh, 215, 220 pounds. As you know, his weight kind of fluctuated as, as his career went. But, you know, he looked he looked the part, let's put it that way, as, of an, as he called himself a heavyweight. And... Uh, uh, that's what he said one time to me one time when I was asking about this idea that he sometimes weighed too much. And he goes, he reminded me, Tim, I am a heavyweight boxer. So, uh, but uh, yeah, I knew him since he was like uh, really well, since he was like 21 years old. Hey, 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 ki- hey, kids. Hey, everybody. Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How you doing, sir? I am uh, in hell, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called the Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desire and Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! With regards to the with the relationship between him and, and his dad Bill, um, maybe not the easiest man in the world to get along with. Bill, he was he was he was fairly fairly old school. Praise might not have been all that easy to to elicit from him, possibly. But I don't think that was particularly unusual. That's not particularly unusual in in, in boxing circles between father and son, and we've seen lots of combinations of that. But he trained him to start with, didn't he, for for a good spell? Then I think after a defeat to. Uh, to Jesse Ferguson, they they mixed things around, and then and then and then it changed again. I think after that defeat against against Tucker. Well, you know, you know what's interesting about their relationship was, yeah, Bill demanded a few things in the ring, but uh, what Buster and you know and his uncle J.D. McCauley, who by the way just passed away, his uncle became his trainer. Uh, maybe there was a lack of like push from the standpoint of when his son you know, was got sort of like, uh, you know, exhausted or whatever in a workout or something, pretty much let him slide. You know, there wasn't that get up early in the morning and go hit the bricks kind of mentality uh, from at least from a consistent basis. 
and it kind of caught up with him in the Tony Tucker fight because uh, anybody who, who watched Buster knew he had great skills. Uh, he had a little bit of his dad's dynamite, but he also had, you know, he could move and stuff. And he was, you know, when you watch him in that Tyson fight, you see a really polished fighter. I don't know if you agree or not. He had a great left jab. Uh, he, he had boxing savvy. He knew when to roll out of situations. He knew when to press the situation. He knew when to grab the guy and rest a minute. Uh, you know, we'll get to that eighth round in a minute, you know, uh, which really paid off and then became the controversial part of that fight. But, uh, but the bottom line is he maybe wasn't getting pushed like he should have been. And so he, they went to uh, John Johnson. I mean, John Johnson was already in the picture then, but then uh, uh, the dad stepped out of the way and J.D. McCauley pretty much picked up the training on a big time uh, uh, way and pushed him to that next level, just hoping they would get another shot. You know, like I keep reminding people, he did fight for one of the belts. You know, he did fight for the IBF championship with Tony Tucker. So he got that far. He got that far under his dad's tutelage. You know, it was time for an, for a change. Uh, and as you mentioned, top of that bill was Tyson against Pinkland Thomas. Tyson defending his WBC and WBA. And, and the obvious um, outcome was going to be that, that Tyson would beat Thomas. Everybody expected that, which duly happened. And then there would be the Grand Slam unification between whoever won uh, out of Tucker and, and Douglas. So their, their paths were kind of not too far away from each other at that at that point. And, and Matt, he's an interesting kind of character, Douglas, when you trace through those, those early stages because it did always seem like he had ability and, and certainly some real tools, but it was just a case, as is often the case, of, of putting it all together. Yeah. Motivation? What do, you, what do you want to call it? You know, when your dad has had to chop his way through a wall to even make something of himself, you know, it's, it, I think it's natural for most fathers to make life a little bit easier for their kids, you know, whether it's financially or whatever you want to, you know, whatever means you want to talk about. And yeah, it just, it, it kind of bothered folks that uh, Buster didn't quite have that just pure overdrive that it takes to become a world champion. There are a lot of guys that can be just regular, normal fighters, you know, and, you know, go through the life, go through their life like 25 and 10 or something. Uh, but Buster had the ability. A lot of people could see it. He just didn't have that just final pure fire motivation to get the best out of himself on a consistent basis. You know, it's really funny because if uh, I think if you listen to the HBO or watch and listen to the HBO uh, telecast of the Buster Douglas uh, Tyson fight, you'll hear Larry Merchant make this comment about, well, Buster has always, has always fought up to his opposition, up, up or down to his opposition, depending on how, how good they were. And the funny thing was, uh, John Johnson II, uh, which is John Johnson's son, and I were at a uh, sort of a get-together with Larry Merchant and uh, the broadcast crew the night before, and we, we had actually said that to Larry Merchant, <laughs> who clearly, clearly was surprised by what he was seeing the next night but we were reminding him that, you know, Buster, man, if you poke him hard enough, he's going to hit you. <laughs> and uh, that's kind of what you saw. And uh, there was a lot of scrambling, I think, by uh, Larry Merchant and company as that fight ensued. They weren't really sure what they were seeing. And Matt, that's, it's, it's, not, it's not unusual down boxing history, is it, to see fighters who, who've got that ability in them. And sometimes it takes the greatest occasion to, to bring it out. Yeah, you see it, you see it in all kinds of sports. Yeah. But you see in all kinds of sports where a really gifted, like in our in our country, real football, which is where you kick it off and throw it and stuff. 
uh, in real football, you'll see athletes who should be the greatest football player you ever saw, except they don't have, what do you want to call it, that moxie, uh, that drive, that uh, that vision of the game, like a, maybe a, a lesser athlete does who then excels because of that. And Buster, Buster almost naturally uh, accrued that, I, I call it that moxie of a fighter. He just didn't always want to, you know, train for it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but it is interesting. You know, it is what it is what happened to him after the Tyson fight. You know, it was a kind of a natural situation there when you really look at it in hindsight. But uh, getting ready for like for Tyson, I mean, this guy was moving what what we call in our states. He looked to me like a great outside linebacker on a football team. I mean, he had that kind of uh a lot about him. I mean, he was up on his toes. He was in the best shape of his life. He was cut. You know what I mean by cut uh, physically. And uh, he was ready to go. I think what you see a lot in sports, and, and this is a prime example, you've got someone in Buster Douglas who was a, who obviously was blessed with natural ability, talent. He had, you know, he had the amateur pedigree. So we, we knew he could do it. We knew, we knew it was there. I mean, I wasn't around then, but I'm saying looking back, people around would have known that he had this ability, this talent, but he was so inconsistent. And probably the biggest factor of that was the motivation or maybe self-belief or maybe it was a mixture of a few things. But when the night came and the stars aligned for him and he had that motivation and he, 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 he got the best out of himself on the night and he believed he was going to win. And also probably no pressure on him because, you know, it was considered a foregone conclusion that Tyson was just going to steamroll him. You know, all of a sudden he puts, he, he digs down and finds this performance, which only those around him and very close to him probably knew he all, always had. You know, yeah. and, and aligned with that, you know, and, and coupled with that, sorry, you've got Mike Tyson, who naturally was probably believing his own hype, was probably looking past the fight to a fight with Evander Holyfield. When we've seen it, you know, last year or, or the year before, whenever, was it last year? Yeah, last year, last summer, we were in Madison Square Garden, me and Andy were there. and you had Anthony Joshua fighting Andy Ruiz, which not completely dissimilar circumstances. You had Ruiz, who was a good fighter, but nobody thought he was going to go in and beat Anthony Joshua. Anthony Joshua was talking about fighting Deontay Wilder. Deontay Wilder made two press announcements that week that he was going to fight Tyson Fury. Um, you know, and, and, and all the questions posed to Anthony Joshua in the week of the fight weren't even about Andy Ruiz. That was just a given that he was going to come through this. And everyone was talking about what happened after that. You know, will you fight Wilder? Where will it be? What promotion? What network? All this stuff completely about dismissed the thought of uh, Andy Ruiz and the threat of Andy Ruiz. And as a human being, it's only natural that subconsciously, you know, you take your eye off the ball. And so I think Tyson... You know, and, and listen, they're well documented the, the, the situations that was happening with Tyson outside of the ring as well. But yeah. I think, you know, that's Tyson's problem. You know, you've got to control the controllables. And, and Bus Douglas's uh, situation was that was the night where he was absolutely motivated. Maybe the the input, maybe the fact his mother died. He, you know, he was underdog. You know, it was probably a perfect storm in, on his side of things. And yeah. he just suddenly produced a performance, regardless of how Tyson performed, he produced a performance that he was always capable of, really. And, and, yeah. and you know, Tyson, Tyson's shortcomings were, were his responsibility. Yeah, uh, that's a good, good summary. I mean, 
the day before the fight, the night before the fight, uh, Donald Trump and uh, all these people flew over, who, by the way, is the current president of the United States. <laughs> uh, he flew over and uh, uh, they announced the the Tyson uh, Holyfield fight. I think it was going to be in May at one of uh, Trump's hotels, uh, casinos in uh, Atlantic City. I can't remember if it was the Trump Plaza or the uh, Taj Mahal, but the bottom line was I went up to Shelley Finkel, who was uh, one of the guys involved, uh, matchmaker, et cetera. And I said, you know, this is all well and good, but, uh, and he was with uh, Dan Duva. And I said, but what if, if Buster beats Tyson, does he get this fight? And they both started laughing, <laughs> you know? And uh, I tell this great story that in the fifth round, after the fifth round, when it's obvious Buster is beating Mike Tyson, beating him up, beating him up, Dan Duva gets up and he's walking back and forth next to me in the, uh, in the, uh, aisle uh, between press row and the, you know, up front, uh, press seat or, uh, ringside seating. And he's, I swear he's smoking a cigarette and he keeps walking by me going, I, I can't believe this. I, I can't believe this. And I wanted to grab him and say, you better believe it, man. It's happening. And it was, it was just a, you're right. I mean, uh, Tyson was not motivated. He had a change, obviously, uh, had, had was dealing with a change in his own corner, uh, et cetera. And, uh, he, he thought it was going to be a walkthrough. He didn't train like he had, had been training. That's pretty obvious to everybody. But you always had to wait, stay away from that uppercut because he was born to throw the uppercut and knock people out. And Buster did that for almost eight full rounds. Well, we'll get to the we'll get to the nuts and bolts of the actual fight in just a bit. I can't wait. But but before that, let's just let's just trace this journey just just a little bit further so we could bring both of these men to the ring. So. After the defeat against Tucker, I think it's fair to say that it was, it, it was a long way. It was a long way back at that stage, Tim. And he split with Bill, his dad, as trainer again. Um, and John Russell was added at that point. I think. I think that was the, the point at which he he joined the team, and he turned out to be a fairly crucial part of the of the setup. And, and then he went on to get wins against Burbick um, on the Bruno undercard of, of, of Tyson Bruno. And then all of them a call on the undercard of Tyson against against Williams. I mean, it was a fairly long rehabilitation process for him. Yeah, here's here's what happened to Buster after that fight. And by the way, John Russell's role has been disputed by you know John Johnson and J.D. McCauley. Uh, how much influence he had? Uh, he definitely had some influence. Let's put it that way. In in sort of the re the not resurrection, what's the renaissance of Buster Douglas. But Buster went from being a true contender, you know, I think in a lot of people's eyes, to like that guy you could put on a card and give it legitimacy, meaning, oh, he's a legitimate guy for Mike Tyson to fight before he fights this guy. You know, because obviously uh, they put him on to replace Razor Ruddock uh, after that. But yeah, I mean, and even that journey back, to a legitimate opponent, as opposed to most people's eyes, they didn't consider him a legitimate contender after that, as you're talking, 42 to one pretty much summarizes that attitude toward him. But he became a guy that would be a respectable opponent on a card, and and that's how he ended up getting the fight, because you know it was originally gonna be Razor Ruddick and Mike Tyson, and Tyson, I think, got got ill or something, or sick, and uh, they had to post postpone that, and do away with it. And then they decided, okay, let's throw Buster in here in the only place we can sell this fight, Japan, because, because Mike Tyson was such a hero in Japan for whatever reasons. 
And, uh, you know, so they all end up going to Japan, including Tim May. I go, you know, well, you know, I had seen, I had seen Mike Tyson fight quite a few times because Buster had fought on some of many of his undercards, including the Frank Bruno fight. You know, Frank Bruno kind of gave Buster Douglas and his group, uh, John Johnson and them, the idea of how to beat Mike Tyson. Because Frank Bruno, that was fought at the Las Vegas Hilton uh, 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 conference, uh, what are the convention center little room. Well, it wasn't a small room. But, uh, but the bottom line was he had hit Tyson, but he didn't have the, I'm not going to call it guts, because I think anybody who gets in the, in the ring with Mike Tyson at that point has tremendous guts. But he didn't have the tenacity to hit him again, you know, because he was afraid you might step into an uppercut or whatever. For phrase the weary or, or wary of stepping into an uppercut. And of course, I think that fight went five or seven rounds. I can't remember. But he showed that on video that if you hit Mike Tyson in the face, he would sort of stop <laughs> and kind of go into this. And it was, he was there to be hit again. If you had the guts to step in there and hit him again. So that was, you know, that was one of those little things that the Buster Douglas camp caught caught, you know, caught wind of and just told Buster, you know, you got to be willing to step in there and to- throw two or three jabs in a row and you can take control of this fight. But those are just the little things that happened uh, between the time he lost to Tony Tucker and the time he got the fight. There were sort of some blueprints coming online of how to beat Mike Tyson if he had the guts to stand in there and try to do it. So I'll just I'll just bring Tyson to the to the ring and and just trace through his his journey. I won't go into any huge detail because listeners to Macklin's take your your hardcore. You know you know your boxing history uh, and Tyson's story has been written in so many different places. It's a fascinating one, but it has been given huge huge exposure. Of course, he had a he had a troubled uh, troubled upbringing, troubled background. Uh, found himself in the cat skills at the Tryon School for Boys uh, at a, as, as a young teenager around about that time. Um, met a, a guy called Bobby Stewart, uh, who introduced him to boxing, who then turned him over to Matt Baranski, who in turn introduced him to Customato. Uh, I think it started from there. Tomato, who had previously managed Floyd Patterson and Jose Torres and run the Gramercy Gym in, in New York, was a pretty eccentric character, very, very experienced in boxing and they got him training up there. Um, Teddy Atlas and, and Kevin Rooney looking after his training to, to, to start with. He did well as an amateur and wasn't too far away from making it to the Olympics in 1984, but that didn't work out. So they turned him professional at a young age and he was incredibly active early on. Um, by the time he boxed for his first world title against Burbick, that was the WBC in November 1986. He'd been a pro for a year and a half and he was 27 and 0. Um, he won that fight, then unified against James Bone Crusher Smith, then got the set against against Tony Tucker. Um, June 1988 was a huge fight for him, the, the final piece of the jigsaw really against Michael Spinks, because Spinks, having beaten Holmes, was the was still the man who had beaten the man. So he annihilated Spinks in 91 seconds to to really do everything that he could possibly do. And when oh, yeah, let, arrived, me interrupt, let me interrupt you. The, the funny thing, and uh, I've never had this verified, but the way I understand it, Michael Spinks was asked what happened in that fight. And he said, I threw my best jab at him and he walked through it like he was walking through rain. <laughs> and he said, then I knew my, my time was numbered. Uh, wow. That, what a statement that was, whether it's true or not, it sure sounds great. 
Go ahead now. It's, a, it's, a, it's an absolutely brilliant line, that. It's an absolutely brilliant line. Uh, and by the time he got to the ring in in Tokyo, he was he was 37-0. He'd made nine defences of the title, which which left him behind, just the likes of Lewis Ali um, and Holmes. I mean, he was he was... He was invincible. He was unbeatable. He was terrifying. He was absolutely everything that you could possibly imagine. Let me interrupt want. you again. I walked. I walked behind him going into the ring. Going when he walked to the ring. I did this. I've done this with different guys like AJ Foyt going into the Indy 500, things like that. I walked behind him going in as he walked to the ring against Bruno that night in Las Vegas, and just because I wanted to feel what that was like as people recognized, here comes this guy that can't be beat, you know, and it was, it still gives me a uh, chill blains a little bit. Uh, just the feeling I got there, people going, Oh, you know, and the, the respect and maybe even the fear that even the people in the crowd had as he walked through to the, to go up into the ring. Uh, he had a presence like few others ever have and have ever had in this sport. Well, he was Iron Mike. He was the baddest man on the planet, and nobody was really disputing that at, at, at that point. But but by the time he got to the got to the ring in Tokyo, the, there were some cracks behind behind the scenes because Demato had, had passed away in in 1985. Uh, Jim Jacobs, who was another key character in his life, uh, in March '88 before the Sphinx fight, he passed away, uh, and it was Demato Jacobs and Bill Caton really who were the triumvirate behind him. Bill Caton was still around. But then Don King moved in and things got difficult. He'd also married Robin Givens and that, and that got difficult right from the beginning. And all of a sudden, his life really became enormously chaotic. There, there, were, there were lawsuits all over the place. There, was, there were increasing instances of, of, of very questionable uh, behaviour uh, on Tyson's part. And, and he really was just being sucked down into this vortex of of celebrity chaos even there was this horrific appearance on the Barbara Walters show there was all sorts of things going on and and Kevin Rooney his longtime trainer had gone as well um Aaron Stoll and Jay Bright who trained him for for the fight against Douglas they 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 came in for the fights against Bruno and, and Carl Williams and they went fine but by the time we got to Tokyo the original cast of Team Tyson had basically all gone um having said that no one was really thinking that was making too much difference because he got rid of Bruno and he got rid of Williams um, and it wasn't really thought to be a problem. And, uh, and Matt, the, these are the kinds of things that we pick through when we look back on, on something with the benefit of, of hindsight. And you could see that, that he probably had maybe peaked against Spinks, Mike Tyson, but, but having said that, he was still an absolutely devastating force. Yeah, and I mean, if you look back, you know, on the Tyson story, and, and, and it's all well documented, and there's been videotapes and DVDs and, and, and whatever, where you all look back at it and, and you read the, um, you listen to people talk about it now with the benefit of I think the cracks were already coming, even even going into the Sphinx fight, he, his life was in absolute chaos, which was probably his, one of maybe his most devastating performances outside yeah. of the ring, outside of the gym. His life was spiraling out of control, you know, relationships, what other you know, situations and scenarios were going on. His life was spiraling completely out of control. Yet he goes in against Michael Spinks, and that was a super fight. You know, Spinks was a great fighter, and he just yeah. blew him away. I mean, literally blew him away. So it was like, I mean, I wasn't around, Sim was, but I'm guessing even going into Tokyo, even though 
I'm sure everyone was aware of the stuff that was happening and how chaotic, even when you hear the stuff now, what it was like in Tokyo. You know, it was meant to be mental when he was over there, Tyson. He was literally with a different woman every day, but as but the sounds of things. But like hmm. people still thought, oh well, that doesn't really matter because it's Mike Tyson. He's just gonna go in there, he's gonna land an uppercut and the fight will be over. <laughs> and actually he did land an uppercut and yeah. the fight perhaps should have been over. I mean, I mean this it's I don't know if there'll ever be another story quite like Mike Tyson's in the history of maybe sport. Hey, Matt, let me tell you, uh, I, I've told people this a million times. I gained more respect for him after the after the Douglas fight than I had for him before because he was getting beat up. He's like you walking up on a, a, a fight out on the corner, you know, outside a pub. And the one guy's just beating the hell out of this one guy. And then all of a sudden, the other guy just, you know, kicks the guy in the groin and takes over. You know what I mean? I mean, he was getting beat beat up on on television in front of like uh, his adoring fans there in Tokyo. But he almost still won the fight with an uppercut. He almost still saved the day, and uh, that that just me showed not only the heart of the champ, a heart of a champion, because he was still there, you know, heart of a champion, but also the ability of a champion, and he summoned it, but. You know, there were a lot of reasons why that count went as long as it did. Uh, but we'll get into that later, I'm sure. But you're you're exactly right. His whole life was in disarray. But when he needed that, just that moment where he went back to just his seminal uh, ability, he brought it. He brought it to the fore and almost saved the night. You're exactly yeah. right. When you got someone who's so out of control like that with Tyson, I, I, you know, and I'm only – Guessing here, really, I suppose, with, with, with a bit of wisdom. <laughs> but I'm guessing yeah. that, like, you know, you've got a fighter who's that sort of chaotic and reckless. You know, boxing's really the only thing that's keeping his life on some kind of normality. You want to keep that guy as active as possible, because at least if yeah. he's busy and he's got a fight, he's got structure, he's got routine, he's got something to focus on. You right. know, you've got, you stand half a chance, but when you're not fighting, you know, that's when it goes chaotic. But but by all accounts, by the time he got to fight Buster Douglas in Tokyo, maybe he just wasn't, didn't see Douglas as a threat at all. No. But, you know, if you believe the stories, it was pretty chaotic over there in Tokyo. Yeah, yeah. Well, he got knocked down. I can't remember the like, who knocked him down, actually, in his uh, in sparring, a little bit of sparring before that fight. I'm trying to remember the fighter's name that, you know, they had for a sparring partner. I mean, the cracks were there. Anybody could see them. You know, this is what kind of like, that upset me because I like Jeremy Schapp and uh, HBO. They do a great job with their 30 for 30s and stuff. And that 42 to 1 thing, they made it out like nobody saw this coming. And I'm not patting myself on the back, but, you know, I saw it coming If because I knew Buster was in the greatest shape of his life, and I knew Tyson was not. And you could see Tyson was almost bothered by even even being there. I mean, it was, you know, he was distracted uh, uh, to a great degree, I, I didn't cover him intimately leading up to that fight because, like I've told people, the only reason I was there was because Buster Douglas was from Columbus, you know. But anybody who watched the press conferences and uh, asked questions like I did of Tyson and stuff, you could see that he thought this was going to be a walkthrough on his way to a big payday against Evander Holyfield uh, later in Atlantic City. And uh, and you're exactly right. All the signs were there, but the one thing you had to worry about was at his core – like I told you a while ago about following him to the end of the ring, this fried Bruno. If you ever stood behind Mike Tyson, he was built to throw the uppercut. I mean, like a tow truck with a hook on the back. I mean, 
he was built to throw the uppercut. And like I said, it almost saved him. And uh, it was really a moment of reckoning for him as you look at it. But maybe he didn't quite still quite get the message like it looks like he has now. Go ahead, though. Imagine, though, the hype and aura that Tyson had at that time. If you think about it, 42 to 1 in a yeah. two-horse race. Two people in there with, you know, heavyweight boxing. Everyone can punch. And Buster Douglas was a good fighter. Imagine to be 42 to 1. Secretariat. Secretariat. That's the aura. Yeah. That's the aura and the hype that Tyson had. And also how how kind of just dismissed the threat of Buster Douglas was. Absolutely. Yeah, mind you, Secretariat in the Belmont Stakes, it wasn't going to be if he won, it was going to be how, how, by how long, by how many links he did win, you know, and uh, it was the same way. You're exactly right. I had people coming up to me, interviewing me before that fight because nobody knew anything about Buster. And uh, I'll tell you this story later on after after it's over, but, you know, I had several, I uh, did several TV interviews with Japanese television and stuff. And I was saying, yeah, I said, uh, this is going to be a hell of a fight, but Buster Douglas definitely's got a chance. I think he's going to win this fight, and I told him why, you know, but nobody was really listening. So just to give some context to that 42 to 1, Andy Ruiz, when he beat Anthony Joshua, he was 12 to 1. He was 12 to 1, and nobody gave him any chance whatsoever, but he was three and a half times more likely to beat Anthony Joshua than people thought Douglas was to beat Mike Tyson. It was Greg Page, by the way, the sparring partner who who put yeah, Greg who put Page. Tyson down. Um, Buster Douglas, by the way, beat in Atlanta. You know that was the, that was when people kind of took notice. Buster Douglas might be pretty damn good when he beat Greg Page in Atlanta. I think it was nineteen eighty five or eighty six. Uh, so that was interesting. Go ahead. So. Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. Before we get to Tokyo, of course, there, there was an absolutely key event in the build-up to this to this fight, which could have completely derailed James uh, James Douglas, but it didn't. And that obviously was the the very premature death of his of his mum, Lula Pearl, who was just forty six years old. And I think every member of the team afterwards came to him and, and and asked him, you know, do you want to go through with this? It would be absolutely fine if we don't. Um, and he was adamant that that he was going. He was going to to fight. I mean, when you were around him around that time before before you left to go over to to Tokyo, how how did he how did he seem to you? Well, he was sad to begin with. Obviously, uh, they kind of broke training there for a little while, for like quite a few days. So there was the worry that not only was he sad, but that maybe he might lose that edge he had developed. You know, over the over the previous two and a half months of getting ready for that fight. And, uh, but his resolve, his resolve became stronger. I mean, he always wanted to, as much as he loved his dad, he always wanted to make his mom proud of him. I mean, that's the best way of putting it. And uh, he knew, you know, he's, he has, a, he's a man of faith. He felt and knew that his mom was going to be looking down on him that night. You know, and in some respects, you got to think, you know, He's thinking that she's going to take care of him, you know, to a certain extent. And so it just added to his resolve. Uh, and as you look back on it now, 
And that was a huge piece of it, I truly believe. Because his mom, when this fight was first announced, his mom was was not that fired up about it like everybody else because Mike Tyson's uh, reputation was what it was, you know? And uh, um, he could hurt people. He didn't just, you know, knock people out. He hurt people sometimes. And and uh, But Buster wanted to prove himself as much to his mom as anybody else in the world. And that was taken away from him, but it, I think it added to, like I said, his resolve. So, so what was it like when you when you got over there then? Because we've we, we've been around some 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 big fights, me and Matt, and you can often have a situation where a big name arrives and the room fills to bursting, and then they depart the scene and the room empties with them. And and as I understand it, with regard to the the press conferences when they were both over there a, a few days, weeks out, maybe from the fight, that's what it was like. Everybody was there to see Tyson, and then you'd be left with a handful of people for, for, for Douglas for the press conferences. Yeah, that was it. That was it sort of, you know, I mean, uh, usually they, you know, the, the one press conference, they appeared together and nobody left, you know, obviously, because uh, that was an interesting press conference in its own because, you know, there were uh, accusations or whatever you want to call it, uh, that uh, Tyson might be taking some substances to help him get ready for the fight and things like that, which were far-fetched, you know, to a certain extent. But, uh, but it was just, you know, it was the interesting thing about about all of that was how dismissive Tyson was of almost everything. Any question you would ask him or you try to probe him, et cetera. And uh, so that's what stood out to me more about the press conference situations than it did people getting up and leaving. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, it was obvious. Like I said, the Japanese television guys, for example, that I, that interviewed me had no knowledge of Buster Douglas in any form or fashion, but they were doing their, I don't know if due diligence, but uh, maybe their obligation to get a little bit on the competitor. <laughs> you know, the guy who's going to offer the punching bag for Mike Tyson. Uh, but that was kind of more what it was like than anything else. No one, back to 42 to one, no one gave him a shot. And, you know, and the reason odds go the way they do, and you you know this, uh, you keep setting odds until somebody actually bets on a guy, you know, I mean, makes it worth your while to, to to put money down, the odds don't always necessarily reflect what people totally think about a, a fight. I mean, if you looked at Buster Douglas, you would you wouldn't you wouldn't look at him and say he's Michael Spinks. I mean, he's a he was a much bigger, grander kind of athlete boxer than Michael Spinks. But Michael Spinks obviously had the reputation and the record going for him. But Buster, like I said, when he fought Greg Page, he looked like a polished dude, man. I mean, you could put on fights where you go, hey, this is you could watch videos where you'd go, hey, this is going to be a hell of a fight. And then you could watch other videos of Buster against fellas when he fought down to his opposition where you go, oh, this guy has no chance in hell. So that was sort of the the feel over there more than anything else. They didn't know anything about Buster and Tyson didn't really care about letting people know too much about him at that point. And, and is, it, is it accurate to say that, that a couple of days before the fight that that Douglas had some had some problems with it with a head cold, a bit of a bit of sinusitis. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And uh, the 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 uh, team was very concerned about him uh, right up till pretty much the day before the fight. And uh, but then he did this. What do you want to call it? What do you call it? The shakeout. Or uh, they were staying at the. Uh, I stayed with them uh, that party, the Grand Palace Hotel. It wasn't. Um, Anyway, it was down the road from the from that big, huge palace over there. Uh, it was called the Grand Palace. It was a fairly modern 
uh, newish hotel. But he did a shakeout. I think we were on the eighth floor. All of us were staying on the eighth floor. And it was in front of the elevator. That was the biggest room, biggest opening there in that building where he could just sort of like bounce around. And he looked great. I mean, it was crazy how just ready he appeared to be for that fight after all that had gone he had gone through losing his mom uh, the trip to Tokyo which takes it out of a lot of people getting getting uh, ill while he was over there his training never really backed off much once he was over there he was still running the steps of the imperial palace and and all that stuff it was really a sight to behold but uh, the head cold did bother them but he he looked ready to go at that point that was about 16 18 hours before the fight you got to remember the fight was fought around uh, started around noon uh, Tokyo time, because so it could be on at uh, uh, ten o'clock, ten thirty, uh, in the Eastern time zone of the United States. So we're there, we're there, day of the fight, then. So tell us what, what, how did it, how did it play out from your point of view in, in terms of what time did you get there? Um, did did you go with Team Douglas? Um, did you know how how did it work for you? Yeah, I just took my I took my own little cab over there to the Tokyo Dome, walk in, and uh, I had some cheese doodles. I'm telling you. I lost about eight, eight to 10 pounds on that trip because there was nothing over there I wanted to eat. <laughs> I mean, you get up in the morning and it smelled, the, the, the city smelled like, and this isn't a slam because some people might like it, it smelled like half-cooked fish most of the time. And uh, uh, it was just odd. And uh, Buster had enough of a, uh, a budget that Don King had afforded them to, so he could eat you know, decently while he was over there. He and his entourage could. But uh, get there. You know, and it was kind of a milling about. It was kind of like people, I don't know how to explain it. It was kind of like people were going to like a movie or something where they already knew kind of what the ending was going to be. You know, I mean, that's the sense, the vibe you had in the media. Uh, uh, you know, I don't speak Japanese, but the fans were there. They were all eager. You know, they had their, you know, they're, like I said, 99.9% of the crowd, I'm sure, were Mike Tyson fans. He was a hero over there. So it was sort of like, they're going to watch their an exhibition by their hero, you know, do his thing. And hopefully they get the plug. Kind of like going to an Ohio State football game most of the time over here. You know, you, you kind of know what the outcome is probably going to be. You just kind of want to see how the uh, plot is getting to that outcome. So that was kind of the vibe in, in the room, without a doubt. And um, I, caught, I caught some grief from a couple of media guys who were over there uh, who had uh, – uh, heard that I had written a column that day for our paper back in the back in Columbus that that Buster was going to probably beat Tyson. It was going to be in eight rounds, <laughs> and uh, this was how it was going to go and stuff. And and it did go that way all the way to the eighth round. And then I was sitting there going, well, you know, as as that uppercut came and Buster went down, I went, well, him, nice try. You know, at least he went eight rounds with him. He surprised somebody, but then he got up. There were some interesting goings on behind the scenes, though, before they before they walked out to the to the arena. And this is often the case. You just try and make some kind of mark to disturb the other fighter in the in their preparations. And John Russell went in to witness the the, the hand bandaging and the and the gloving up. Uh, obviously, a member of the team is always allowed to go and observe that um, for the for the other fighter. Matt, you've done it. You've done it for Ricky Hatton against against Manny Pacquiao. And, and Russell just saw that they'd. They tied his gloves on the on the inside. They tied the laces on the on the inside, and despite the fact that they would then obviously tape over those laces, he objected to that because he felt that you could use that to 
to maybe use the inside the the, the heel of the glove to 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 rub against the opponent's face. He was clutching, but he managed to get them to to redo it. And you know, this had been tried before because when when um, when Butch Lewis did this pre pre Spinks, that didn't end so well. It just made Tyson absolutely furious, and, and we all saw what happened what happened there. But Matt, these are the these can be significant moments. Yeah, definitely. You, you, I mean, especially look. If nothing happens, great. But had had um, you know had had they not made that change, and he was you know Tyson was a pretty rough fighter. He did whatever it took. You know, on the inside, he clinches. He you know he did what he had to do. And you know, I think that you know if he was rubbing it up against his face on the inside, and the, the nut's still there where it shouldn't be, then that yeah. could definitely cause some facial damage. So I think look, he was just as a cornerman, as a second, as someone that's going in there on behalf of Team Buster Douglas. He's obviously making sure that he's doing his job, and that. You know, whatever happens in the fight, nothing can be said afterwards that, oh, you should have done this or you should have been stronger in there and you should have pulled them up. That shouldn't happen. He, you know, he made sure that he stood his ground. He wasn't intimidated by Tyson's entourage, which I'd imagine was intimidating. <laughs> but he stood his ground, he fought his corner, and, he, he, you know, he got that. And that, when you're warming up a fight, even even a fight where Tyson was such an overwhelming favourite, you still got nerves, trust me, no matter what, you still got nerves. And, these little things, it just upsets a bit of a rhythm and your routine and, and the way you do things. And it's like, I don't know, it's like a moral little victory, I suppose, for the uh, Team Douglas. You know, they got that one, you know, they didn't yeah. get him away. Yeah, it's interesting. You're right. I mean, uh, this is the thing that people don't give enough credit to about getting into a, a boxing ring of any sort, but especially a heavyweight boxing ring is once you once you step away from your corner, you are all by yourself and you're standing basically in your underwear, you know, with gloves on. And uh, any anybody who doesn't have butterflies or second guessings, no matter who you're stepping in with, uh, because one punch, as you guys well know, can totally change a heavyweight fight like no other like no other class. And but you're right. I mean, just like a little bit of a psychological warfare there by John Russell, just to agitate, you know, kind of poke the bear a little bit. And uh, you know, I think they, I think they kind of wanted. From looking back on it, they kind of wanted Tyson to be a little aggressive because they wanted him to walk into these jabs that they had planned for him. And he kind of did, man. I mean, you know, I don't think it became clear to him until about the third or fourth round that he was in a real fight for his title. And uh, that was when things, you know, really changed in that fight. You know what? It's so difficult. Mental preparation... You know, your, your, your mindset going into a fight, if you've overlooked someone or you don't have enough fear, you need fear. Fear is your friend. It makes you sharp. It makes you, makes you fight good. makes you perform. If you don't have that, it's so difficult to then get it once the fight's already underway and you're in the middle of it. It's, it's yeah. so hard then to sort of get, get into that place, you know. And, and what happens is, you know, that person who might have been the underdog, all of a sudden, you know, his tail is up. And yours is between your legs. It's almost impossible at times to turn that around. Yeah, snowball effect. Hey, Matt, let me bring up something else to you, though, too. As you watch that fight, the early rounds, what else stood out was, you know, you know this term, accuracy. Buster wasn't just throwing jabs. He was throwing accurate jabs. I mean, he was not missing. You know, I mean, because you can you can work all night and not be hitting where you want to hit. And, uh, and I thought Buster's accuracy in that fight was as important as anything else. Uh, you know, because he was, he wasn't like 
uh, he wasn't like Tyson. He wasn't looking to, you know, you know, throw that uppercut that wins the fight or throw a couple of big time haymakers that kind of change it. He was going to work on him. And uh, I thought that stood out as much as anything else about the early rounds of that fight. Yeah, I mean, Douglas was sharp. He come out, he was. He believed in himself. He believed in his preparation. He believed in his tactics. He believed in his ability. And yeah. it was flowing. He was landing shots. He was landing right hands. He was, like you say, he was doubling and tripping up on the jab. He was standing his ground on the clinches with Tyson. It, it, this was his night. You know, yeah. you know, and all of a sudden, Tyson's thinking, oh, shit. And, yeah. you know, and then he was trying to turn it around, but it was difficult. Yeah, yeah, despite all of that, Tyson... Did put it down, and, and it was a lot. Oh of yeah, oh. oh yeah, oh absolutely. And uh, I don't know if we're going to get to that later, but I mean that was a, that was a key moment on, in both sides because one, the one guy summed up that uppercut that he always counted on as being his uh, atomic bomb, and the other guy when he's on the canvas, he's hearing his dad in his head because you know he had talked to his dad, Buster had talked to his dad the, the morning of the fight to, for for his his dad didn't just go away. Uh, his dad just kind of stepped away from the management and everything else. But his dad was back in the States. and uh, and uh, But he was hearing his dad, hey, if you get knocked down, take the eight seconds, take as long as you have to to gather your thoughts, make sure when you stand up, you're ready to go. And so, yeah, it may have been a long count, but it wasn't Buster's fault that it was a long count. He waited until he felt good about standing up because he wasn't knocked out. You know, you've seen the, the video. Uh, but he took that extra little second or two to gather his thoughts and get back in there. Well, we will absolutely get to that, get, get to that, that long count, but, but one absolutely pivotal part of any fight, we always think, but particularly back in those days when people were fighting Tyson was you could tell a lot from the ring walks because Tyson's ring walk would always be the same. He would be minimally dressed. If you like short black boots, solid black trunks, ripped towel, just kind of pulled down over his head usually with a good sweat on, and he would just march to the ring, glowering, a lot of the time just locking onto his opponent. And for the opponent, often they would talk a good game in the build-up to the fight, but then you could see sometimes that belief that they said they had just drain right out of them, almost before your eyes as they're making that walk to the ring, and then just drain even more as they're made to stand and wait in the ring for the announcement. But that wasn't what happened. And when you watch this back... I sometimes wonder whether I read things in that weren't actually there. I'm just looking for them because I know what happened. But Tyson just didn't have that same kind of look about him. He didn't give off that same kind of feral aura, if you like. And Douglas looked good. He looked good. He'd worked hard backstage. He got a sweat on. He had those tassels on his boots. I think that was a thing for him, put the tassels on the boots, you know. He, he 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 meant business, and he maintained that. He maintained that all the way through the announcements, and then and then when the bell goes, as you say, he started really really well. I mean, that must have been a relief for you, really, because you know you're you're a journalist, but of course you know him, so you do want him to win, and there's nothing wrong with that. But, but the, the way, way he started, it, yeah. you, you like, could like see like that I he said was. A while ago, the only reason I'm there is because I'm 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 writing. I've been covering him, and I'm from Columbus, Ohio. If I'd been from Dayton, I wouldn't have been there, you know. Or if he'd been from Dayton or Cleveland, I probably wouldn't have been there. But the other thing, like you just said, <clears throat> that's a great analogy. I mean, a great explanation of what you saw going into the ring because it was the moment of truth. You know, uh, boxing is a truth, has a truth to it like no other sport. And uh, Tyson, you just got the feel that he realized he hadn't put in the work maybe like he had in the past. When he, he not only was a knockout artist, he was in a, most of the time 
probably the best conditioned fighter of the two in the ring. That was not the case that night or that afternoon, excuse me, high noon in Tokyo. I mean, he, you know, and I think a little bit of doubt, like you said, like Matt was talking about, a little bit of doubt drips in. That, that can be devastating for you. And uh, to try to drain that and get back to what you're all about is really tough when you know you haven't put in the work like you should have. You haven't been as concentrated on the task at hand like you should have. Uh, is Am I going to be found out? You know, I think that's the, the, the big question that Tyson probably faced. Yeah, I mean, all of a sudden, you've got the doubts creeping in on one hand, and you've got the belief going through the roof on the other. <laughs> it's yeah. very difficult to stop that once it goes into full flow. Yeah, yeah, crazy, man, crazy. That's why, bo- but boxing, that's why, you know, boxing is brutal, but that boxing, usually the best guy, if it doesn't go to a, a card, you know, if it doesn't go to the scorecards, usually the best guy wins, agreed? Yeah, usually, usually, but you know I mean... Said. You know, you know, if one guy boxes out of his skin and the other one doesn't perform, yeah, you get get upsets. It happens. You know, it happens. Well, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't run and hide. There, there are four corners, but there's no, there's no door. You know. But watching watching the fight back, I watched it yesterday. It is absolutely fascinating to kind of listen to the commentary and identify the point at which. That HBO team, very experienced team, Jim Lampley, Larry Merchant, Sugar Ray Leonard, the point at which they start to entertain the idea that Douglas might actually win. Because often in, in, in all sporting history, but, but boxing too, you'll have a big favourite and a big underdog, never quite to the, the extremes that we had here. But, but sometimes the underdog will, will start well, they will do well for a bit but it takes so much out of them to, to give that effort that they then unravel quite quickly. Bruno's not a bad example, that fight you, you referred to earlier on. But around about, I think after five rounds, Larry Merchant just starts to talk about things a little bit differently. He starts to entertain the idea that Douglas could actually win this fight because a pattern had been set and there wasn't really any sign that it was going to change. And when you looked at Tyson between the corner... He wasn't saying a word. Aaron Snow would kind of like cradle his head and whisper in his ear. And you, and you at ringside, I mean, you must have like, your adrenaline must be going through the roof, Tim, because you must have been just thinking, this this is happening. I'm watching. This is happening. I've known this guy. I've known Buster since he's 16 a little bit. And I've known him very well since he's 21, you know? And you're just going, it's kind of like you're going, you know, they said this was going to happen. And it's happening, and it's happening exactly the way John Johnson and J.D. McCauley, uh, more than anybody else, told me it was going to happen, which is really weird. I mean, we're talking about, you know, a battle plan that goes, that goes to, uh, comes to fruition. And then on top of that, you know, uh, I, didn't, I couldn't notice this during the fight, but you notice it uh, afterward. Uh, uh, when you watch the video of it, because, you know, you're, when ringside isn't always the best seat. You know, you, you guys know that, uh, except for the feeling, the emotion of stuff's going on. But uh, Tyson's corner, his left eye, I think it's his left eye, is swelling up. And they've taken, they claimed later it was a, it was a rubber glove, but it was a condom, the way I understand it, because they weren't prepared for Tyson to even get hit. They didn't even have an inswell in their kit. So, you know what an inswell is, the piece of stainless steel, you rub a thing down. So they've got this uh, condom that they've stuffed ice in and water, and they're holding it on his head over his eye in that area. 
you know, they were they were the most stunned group in the house, I do believe, you know, more than anyone else, that this is happening the way it's happening. And uh and wow, the next the next uh, five rounds are are part of boxing lore as far as I'm concerned, because the eighth round, uh Tyson almost uh saved the day. The ninth round was, in my opinion, the greatest round of heavyweight boxing at least I've ever seen because Tyson came out to finish it and Buster took it and then delivered it back. And in the 10th round, we all know. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the one stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan. New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts. One Star Recruits. What happened? Well, as you as you say, it was it was it, it was incredible, and, and the, the scenario around the lack of the end swell was was amazing. Aaron Snow and, and, and Jay Bright, particularly Aaron Snow, were experienced guys, and and Snow said himself afterwards that he trusted the the cut man. I think his name was Taylor Smith to to have all the right kit, but he didn't check, and he blamed himself for that. He swears it was a, a rubber glove. Well, and, 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 well, look at the video; see if it looked like a looked like a rubber glove with maybe one finger or something. But go ahead. Um, yeah. what, kind, what, what must the mindset have been like not to have an end swell but to have a condom that makes that makes for better that, that's, that's a better uh, makes for a better movie no matter what go ahead <laughs> it's that, it is it is it is 100% a, uh, a better story but then in that eighth round in that eighth round it, it just gets a little bit careless maybe throws a, a kind of lazy looking left hand and then just leans in as if he's going to get him in a clinch Tyson has enough room to do that work crunches in with an uppercut and uh, and down he goes and he goes down you. heavy let me interrupt you for a second yeah I want to tell you something Tyson threw I don't know how many uppercuts in that fight not even interrupt you as you were coming to the climax there with Tyson but and just barely missed I mean and, you know, it was uppercuts that went all the way past Buster's head and were up here. And Tyson was a little guy, you know, he's 5'11". Uh, Buster's six foot four, and it, you know. And uh, and it, he was throwing potential haymakers all day just trying to save himself, like Matt was talking about. You go back to, you go back to your default punch when everything else is going wrong, right? And he kept, and finally, like you said, he, he lands it and you're, and Buster's falling, and at this very moment, I'm sitting there ringside going, you know what, no matter what, because, you know, you always got to be working on your lead. You know, it was definitely on big-time deadline for me back in the States. And uh, you're always going, you're saying to yourself, oh, my goodness, you know, okay. But he went eight rounds with this guy. You know, uh, he went eight rounds with the unbeatable guy. And uh, all this is going through your head in like two seconds. And then you notice he's not knocked out. But go ahead. Well, he just rolls onto his side, doesn't he? And kind of like punches the canvas in frustration. Uh, and then he starts to respond to the referee's count. Now, it's a very experienced referee, o Octavio Mehran. He had taken charge of Sugar Ray Leonard against Roberto Duran. He'd, he'd done loads of, 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 of top, top fights. And he 
gave his own count. He didn't pick up the timekeeper's count, which he was perfectly entitled to do. The referee is the sole arbiter. That's, that's how it is in boxing. Anybody who follows the sport will be able to tell you that. And when he picked up the count at one, when he issued his own count of one, the timekeeper was at three. The referee has things to do when a knockdown is scored. You have to get the fighter who scored it to the furthest neutral corner. You have to take up a position yourself from which you can see the stricken fighter and the other fighter. And that can take a little bit of time. So, and then the count was maybe a little bit slow. So they timed it and in, in total, they reckon it was 14 seconds. But you don't have a stopwatch that flashes up on the big screen as soon as a fighter touches down. That, that's not what you're looking at if you're, if you're James Douglas. You are responding to the referee's count. That's what you're doing. You have to beat the referee's count. And he did that just, but he did it. If it had been quicker, that count, do you think that he could have responded quicker? I mean, it looked to me like he probably could have. Yeah, well, like Buster, like Buster said, I mean, you know, he took those extra seconds to gather himself. Yeah, I think he would have because re- he was not knocked out, and he was he was he was not showing traits of I've left the building. He was showing traits of, damn it, all night I was supposed to stay away from that. I got you know you have all these thoughts going through his head. Damn it, I stepped right into it, you know, and uh, and he. He was fully aware of what was going on. I, I think he would have gotten up if, if, if the count of six, if if the knockout was, you know, if the count was to seven, he would have gotten up at six. Uh, that's truly what I've always believed about that because he was not, he was not knocked out. So, you know, it is what it is at this point, uh, as great people say. Uh, completely, completely. And, and and just an interesting footnote to that too is that when he gave the count later on, Octavio Meran, it was exactly the same. It was a 14-second count um which Tyson couldn't then beat but it was right at the end of the round which 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 was fairly key and Matt Tim Tim said previously that round nine was one of the great heavyweight rounds and and I would fall in with that completely because Tyson did step out there to finish him off and 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 that's where we really learn just what Douglas had put into it in the preparation because of his recovery the way he was able to recover and mentally where he was at because by the end of that round how Tyson stayed on his feet towards the end of that ninth round, I will never know. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if Buster Douglas hadn't have been so mentally prepared, if he hadn't absolutely believed in himself before the fight and going in and through the fight that he was going to win this fight, he would have folded on that. And when Tyson came out there and threw everything at him, because, you know, Tyson must have known he didn't really probably have the gas. He'd been, you, you know what I mean? He'd had, he had, yeah. he'd had his head boxed off really in that fight. And he lands that big uppercut, puts him down. Yeah, it was a long count. But he, he he came out then to try and get this job done. To try and let's finish this guy now and put him away. We don't want to let him back into the fight, you know, because Douglas had been boxing so well. So Tyson definitely went to finish him. And Douglas, if he was a lesser fighter or if he hadn't had prepared so well, if he, if he hadn't really had the bit between his teeth and the, and the self-belief coming into the fight, he'd have folded at that point. He wouldn't, he, he's resolved, I don't believe would have stood up to that onslaught from Tyson. Yeah, you're you're exactly nail on the head. And uh, to me, the way he just, from like the, it was about the minute and 10 or minute 20 mark, as I remember it from Tokyo, in that round, everything changed. I mean, he went back on the offensive big time. And Tyson, from that moment on, it was a, it was a matter of time. You agree? I mean, as you watch the fight in retrospect, it was a matter of time. Like you said, if he could stay away from one more uppercut. And uh, that was clearly what it was. If, to me, the poetic 
nature of things of how it got to the 10th round, which is the round that Buster pretty much ran out of gas against Tony Tucker and everybody wrote him off. Now the Tyson fight gets to the 10th round uh, against the unbeaten heavyweight champion of the world. And the fact it's going into the 10th round in his Buster's moment of truth is just ridiculous, poetic uh, justice, if that's the right term. So just before we get into that 10th round, what, what what's going on at, at ringside over the course of those previous couple? Because Tyson looks like he's on the brink of victory and then everybody would have thought he would clinch it in the ninth. But as we know, he didn't. You've got Don King sat next to Donald Trump in the second row. Dan Duva, you mentioned, he's there with Evander Holyfield. There are plans in place here. There are big plans in place here. I mean, they must have been, they must have been beside themselves. Well, I told you what Duva did in the fifth round. After the fifth round, he's walking up and down the aisle next to me going, I, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. And like I said, I wanted to grab and say, you better believe it, man. It's happening. And uh, they were, because they were, uh, uh, Trump and uh, Trump and, uh, and King were over on the other side of the ring from where I was sitting. And, uh, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was, it was surreal uh, because the fans, it's kind of like a home, I don't know what, you know, like one of y'all's home football games over there, you know, I mean, soccer game, we call it soccer over here, but anyway, I digress. Uh, when the home team is winning, the fans are, are beside themselves. That's what they were in the middle of late in the eighth round when Buster, when uh, Tyson threw the uppercut, because it was a, it was a Mike Tyson crowd. You follow my drift? Then all of a sudden in the ninth round, things got really pretty quiet because people knew they were witnessing, witnessing something special but it wasn't what they had signed up for. And that was a, it was surreal actually, but we'll go to the 10th round. I'll tell you how surreal it was. It was really odd. Well, that, that, that 10th round is, is that image of, of Tyson um, when he gets knocked down and he's scrabbling around looking for his mouthpiece is one of the iconic images, because another thing to bear in mind about this for, for younger listeners, and I'm not, I'm not trying to patronize anyone here, but this is pre-internet. This is 1990. So either you saw this live, which in the UK, very few people did. It was on Sky TV, which was really, really new on Sky Movies. I think they then repeated it later in the week. And then you basically had to wait for it to come out on, on VHS. There was the odd clip on the news. And there was this image of Tyson on all fours trying to retrieve his retrieve his mouthpiece. That's what, what pops into my head immediately whenever I think of this fight. But in that 10th round, he talk about uppercuts. James James Douglas hits Tyson with a monster uppercut. He's all over the place at that point, and then he he closes in and finishes finishes him off. And Tyson was down, and he was right in Douglas's corner, wasn't he? He was right yeah. next to Douglas's team. The cameraman was right in the corner, so he was right on top of it. And that's why we we saw what we what we saw. And 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 Matt, it's you know you've been in there and done this, and and watching Tyson on his hands and knees. Just as I say, scrambling to try and get that mouthpiece back in his mouth, not really knowing where he was or what was happening. And and Aaron Snow had to tell him a few minutes later. Tyson turned around to him and said, "What happened?" And he said, "You got knocked out, Mike." But but the fighter in him still knew, "I've got to get this back in my mouth if I want to keep going." It was it was absolutely. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah it's instinct, isn't it? I mean, it's subconscious and it's instinct. He's not conscious of where he is. He's half. He's knocked out. He's not out cold, but he's you know he's, he's, he doesn't know where he is. Yeah, he's still got that fighter's instinct, and so the subconscious in him is trying knowing what he wants to do. He's trying to get to his feet. He's trying to get the cup shield in his mouth. But you know his legs were completely gone. Even when he got up, the ref kind of had to catch him. 
it was um but I remember he talked about that uppercut. It was like I think Douglas was just boxing around him behind I think it was three jabs he hit him with and then he just teed this big uppercut and then that you know then he just landed I think left right left right big shots he went down but yeah, when he went down, he went down heavy. He, he tried to get up. His legs weren't there. He, he's coherent. He, he didn't really know where he was. Uh, but you're, you're right. He still had the instinct in him to get the gum shield, trying to get into his mouth. And he still had the fighter's spirit to try and get up and fight. But, you know, he um, his equilibrium had completely gone and his senses were, were scrambled. Yeah, that was that, that was it in a nutshell. And then, uh, then uh, it was crazy what happened after that because the crowd... Like I was saying a while ago, the crowd didn't react like you thought it would. You would have thought it would just been pandemonium, just ridiculous noise like you've never heard before. Because I've heard that before at different sporting events. And uh, and they were almost like stunned at what they had just seen. I mean, from what I could tell. And uh, because, like I said, their hometown team, <laughs> their favorite had been beaten. You know, it's not the same as like a, a neutral crowd where you just, hey, this guy's a heavyweight champion. This guy's not. Wow, you just witnessed boxing history. That's what that's you were asking a while ago. What was it? What was it like before the fight? It was kind of like what it was like after the fight. That wasn't what they paid for. That wasn't what they came to see. You know, they came to see their guy, their favorite, their hero win. There were some cheering going on. The the small Douglas entourage, almost all of it, got into the ring. You almost saw a better fight after the fight than you saw during the fight. You know, of people of uh, of uh, uh, Tyson's people coming to, you know, his aid, so to speak. You know how things get crazy in, in a post fight, but uh it was nuts, man. It was it was to be there and to watch him fall. It was like watching a tree fall in a forest and you're there. Yeah, it made a big sound as far as the boxing world was concerned. Well, it was it was absolutely extraordinary. And and actually one thing which um the scores. I mean, the scores at the time of the at the finish, which, which didn't matter, thankfully. But the U.S. judge had Douglas ahead and given him basically every round, apart from one in which he was knocked down. But the two Japanese judges, one had it level, and one had Tyson a, a point in front. So thank God we didn't we didn't need those. But, but there you go. There's the example right there. What I'm talking about. So how did it how did it then play out for you? He, he gave the interview in the ring uh, with Larry Merchant. Um, he mentioned his his mother and the and the obviously the motivation that had that had furnished him with. Uh, they got hold of him quickly after the end of the fight, and that's not always the best thing because you do get that rawness. But they also they're so knackered they can't really string they can't really string a sentence together. Did you get in the dressing room afterwards, and what what did the subsequent hours hold? Yeah, I mean, I'm sitting there. I'm at ringside writing, writing as fast as I can write because we had a we had a deadline of like 11:30 uh, Eastern time, and I had to get get a story in. So I didn't get to really go in the locker room with or the dressing room right after the fight with them, which I could have, uh, but ended up in the interview rooms afterwards. But to me, I mean, Buster just Buster just answered questions like he had been through a workout, you know, in the post fight situation. I'm talking about in the interview. Uh, situation uh, and Tyson kind of the same way, but I asked Tyson a, a question of that fight. I said, Mike, I said, you've knocked out, I forgot what the number was, 35, 37 people. What's it like to get knocked out? <laughs> and uh, kind of a smart ass question. I know, but, uh, and he said, uh, but he said, I'm just paraphrasing here. Uh, Listen, my friend, you don't judge someone by how they are when things, when, when they're victorious, when things are going well, you judge them by how they come back from adversity which was a great answer. I'm paraphrasing his answer, but that's pretty much what he said. And I just went, 
well, damn, you know, there's some substance to this dude without a doubt, you know, but uh, with Buster, it was just a matter of fact. He was just matter of fact answering questions. And uh, I think during the press conference, he actually pointed out there, there's Tim May back there. Tim May, he, he actually picked me to win and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, So it was, it was just crazy. I got to tell you this little anecdote here. So before, before we go, I'm sitting there after all that, I'm sitting at ringside again, writing stories for basically the next day's paper. And, uh, and I had this presence. All of a sudden I felt this presence back behind me and I turned around. It was one of the Japanese TV guys I'd done an interview with uh, two days before the fight. And when I turned around, he starts going like, he starts going, ah, he goes, ah, you're Mr. May. You pick Douglas, you pick winner. And uh, he's bowing to me. And then he took a card out of his pocket. He goes, later, you, me, we drink. And he put his card on the table next to me. And I said, man, I appreciate it, but I'm on deadline here. And he, he goes, oh, so sorry. And he walked off. But, uh, yeah, it was a strange, strange time, man. Strange time in boxing history. But then no sooner had he, had he won the titles than, than Don King was manoeuvring in the background to try and get the result overturned because of the, because of the, the long count that we, that we spoke about earlier on. It, it, it's, it, interestingly, as we said, he was, uh, he was sitting next to Donald Trump and uh, maybe the Donald was taking a few notes about how to, uh, how to successfully refuse to accept the results of, uh, of, a, of a certain contest. Yeah. Which say, in the vernacular of the day, he was warning a recount of the long count. Go ahead now. He was. <laughs> he was. Um, and there were press conferences convened and, and Octavio Moran was, was hauled in front of the press and, and he was forced basically under enormous pressure to say that he felt he had made a mistake, something he lay, later kind of recanted. And but, yeah. but what was good about the whole thing was that basically – is this fair? King didn't get anywhere with it. And Suleiman, Jose Suleiman, he was just as culpable. They didn't get anywhere with it because the fine gentlemen and women of the press rounded on them and made it clear that this would not fly. Dude, there was a fight between two, between two media guys in, in the press conference before the press conference started because one media guy thought that this other guy was asking questions in, in, in the sense of, trying to come to the defense of Tyson, um, et cetera. And the, this guy took offense because he thought he was trying to steer the conversation in, in such, basically, you know, trying to put, uh, for one of another term, facts out there which weren't going to ride, you know, sit well with the, uh, with, with the public, especially the American public, because they know what they, American public knew what they had seen on, on television stuff. So there was actually fisticuffs in the, in the press room. And, uh, like I said, it was an unreal night. And Matt, Don King, of course, had, had a reputation for being capable of attempting anything, no matter how shameless. But it was, it was just quite heartening to see that even in this, this mad world that, that we inhabit, that is, that is boxing, that there is a line. Sometimes people think that there isn't a line, but that there is a line. And nobody was going to tolerate anybody trying to take this away from Douglas. No, exactly. You know, <laughs> listen, you know, Andy, as I'm sure Tim does too, boxing, there's um, there's some characters <laughs> in the sport, isn't there? And yeah. people, you know, assume things are going to go a certain way. People have plans. There's a lot of things riding on the results of certain fights. And, of course, they'll do whatever they can to get it their way, if they can at all. But 
and you know there was there was room for dispute here because there was the lung cancer. Sure. There was you know even if you got knocked out coals, then there's no room for dispute, and you could be the, the shadiest character in the world. You can't do anything about it. You just accept it. But there was there was that little slight opportunity to try and pretend this didn't happen or to try and undo what just happened by by, by saying it was a lung count because it was a lung count. But I think every, there was enough people there that were wanted fair play, that wanted that the truth to be the truth. And look, Douglas won this fight and yeah. that's it. And then, you know, if the ref got it wrong, the ref got it wrong. But, you know, he that's his job. He's got to call it. You know, this is before the days of VAR or any of the... Uh, those kind of, you know, the, the delayed reaction replay stuff. That's, you know, we can't, that, that wasn't around then, was it? No. And, and, and Matt, you know, to put it in, like I said, in American terms, like in, for example, American football, once a play, once you've gone on to the next play, you know, and you put people in jeopardy again of playing the game without making the, maybe you made an incorrect call, but the next play has now happened. Uh, you don't go back you don't go back and fix it, you know? And like in boxing, the neither fighter was at fault there. Like you pointed out, this was a pure call by the referee in, in the, uh, in the ring who thought Tyson didn't go to the neutral corner as fast as he should have is basically what you got more than anything else from it. Uh, but once they allowed the ninth round to go, you can't go back and say, well, the ninth and 10th rounds didn't happen, you know? And uh, that was sort of at the base of it. Like you just said, and I think from a fair play standpoint, uh, like I said, uh, uh, Buster Douglas was not knocked out. He did get up, uh, et cetera, and you moved on. I'm not sure, like like uh, like y'all were pointing out a minute ago. I'm not sure. I'm not sure Tyson could have gone on after he got knocked down. But but you're right. Once you, once you've allowed it to go to the ninth round, whatever happened for that's moot. So we won't, we won't keep you too much longer. Um, you've been very generous with your time already, but there's just so much to talk about with this fight. So what what were the next weeks like then? Because all of a sudden now he's the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. Nobody thought this was going to happen. And his life and his world completely changes in the blink of an eye. I mean, were you around much of it, the homecoming and the, and the subsequent kind of chaos, really? Yeah, I flew back, uh, flew back with, uh, with them. We were on the same flight, uh, Japan Airlines, and uh, they had an upper, this was a Boeing 747, they had an upper deck, you know, behind the cockpit. And they put they just put the Buster Douglas us people who were were around the Buster Douglas uh, group up there, you know. And I think there were like maybe fifteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen people maybe up there. And uh, so that was the first case of treatment of of a world champion. And uh, then when we got to, flew into Chicago O'Hare International Airport, and uh, I got off the plane before almost anybody else did, and I'm walking down on the way to customs. I'm walking down the uh, the uh, aisle of you know the airport, the hallway of the airport, and I'm going. Every time I saw some people, I said, uh, "By the way, right behind me, uh, Buster Douglas, new heavyweight champion of the world, is coming. You might want to sit here and check him out." <laughs> and so, next thing you know, it's almost like a parade going through uh, O'Hare International Airport you know, on the way to customs. And then, of course, when we landed in uh, Columbus, uh, there was a huge, ridiculous <sighs> crowd at the airport and uh, ended up being a parade. There ended up being a parade a few weeks later, but uh, the real, the real, uh, the real interesting thing was what happened uh, when people started vying for the, uh, for the next fight, you know, with the courting, the court, the courtship of Buster Douglas for that next fight began. And 
that was really, really interesting. Well, that's a story. That's a story for another day. We'll be here. We'll be here until next week if we get into all of that. But but boxing fans know the story really that there was there was unbelievable shenanigans, and then he did box Holyfield, but he wasn't in anything like the shape he'd been against against Tyson, and and it didn't go his way, and it ended in fairly ignominious circumstances. He he then sunk into a depression, didn't he? And and it very nearly cost him his life. He he was very overweight. Um, he was depressed. It's as simple as that. People didn't really talk about those things then. They do now. And and then, what, 96, he made a comeback and maybe did have some kind of ambitions. But what that was really about was getting back together with John Russell, as far as I understand it, and really just trying to sort his his health out. And and and, and he did that. I mean, do you, do you, when was the last time you saw him? When do you... When did you bump into him over? How is he these days? Well, I actually saw him uh, in February when uh, they, they did that 42 to 1 thing. They interviewed me extensively for that and along with others. And uh, 42 to 1 thing for, for uh, ESPN. He's like, he basically teaches boxing to, to kids in Columbus now. <clears throat> is his regular job. Of course, with COVID-19, that's sort of been relaxed a little bit, uh, obviously, uh, with people, you know, with the restrictions, et cetera. But uh uh, I saw him at the uh, at the premiere of that, and then also they feeded him. He was feeded uh, by this group in Columbus, in which I took part in the program, an extensive part in the program. And uh, yeah, you know the interesting thing to me is John Russell, the John Russell thing. You know, Buster tells me today, you know, that John Russell had so much to do with that fight, and. Uh, and the interesting thing was, I don't remember it that way at all. Bus, John Russell was brought on. He was brought on pretty much as the cut man for one of another term. <clears throat> and he did have input. But, uh, uh, you know, how extensive it was uh, before he fought Tyson has always been up to dispute between him and and uh, John Johnson and J.D. Because, you know, I don't remember Buster giving him that much credit back then. And uh, so I don't want to get into that, but the bottom line was they were all there and it was a, it was a really nice evening and Buster, you know, he just did a commercial with a lawyer here in town. You know uh, uh, I mean, he's still got some panache about him. He's a great guy. If you ever got him on this podcast, he'd be a great guy to interview because he's really soft-spoken, but you can tell there's confidence there. You know what I mean? And he's a, he's a, I've always had it, found him to be an extremely fun guy to be around and and still to this day he is and uh it's just funny if he could have just followed through and won that next fight you just always wonder where that would have taken him but would that have been what he was really fated to be you know I think he was fated to be what he was uh to pull off the greatest upset in boxing history and then sort of fade back into the background so how about you? I mean, what what um, what did that night do for you? What kind of what kind of impact did it have? Did it have on you? Because that's a kind of story to be involved in. That yeah, we all want one of them. Everybody, every journalist that's ever lived wants one of them, and hardly anybody gets one. And you got one, and there weren't that many people there either. Like I said at the start, you know, a lot of a lot of big names didn't go because they felt the expense was was not justified by the fact that it was in Tokyo and it was going to be an absolute. He was going to be an annihilation. I mean, how often do you get asked to do things like this? How often do people talk to you about it? Uh, well, you and I are doing, uh, we're doing, me, you and Matt are doing a, a, a podcast 30 years later. 
you know, it kind of comes and goes with the anniversaries every year. You know what I'm saying? Because uh, it is a moment in sports history that people remember, you know, people, you know, 39 or 40 years old or older probably remember where they were when they either watched it or heard about it, you know, way back then. So, and yeah, and there's been some quote celebrity from it for me to a certain extent, but I always defer that to the guy that was in his underwear fighting Mike Tyson in his underwear, you know, cause that's no matter what John Russell did, JD McCauley, John Johnson, Don King, you know, Donald Trump, Dan Duva, all these people were behind the scenes in some form or fashion. Evander Holyfield was sitting there ringside. <clears throat> no matter what they did, it came down to Buster Douglas summoning what he had never summoned before and since and getting the job done on that afternoon in Tokyo. And that's what I always defer to is, yeah, I was there and yeah, I, I predicted it was going to happen, but he's the one that had to make it happen. And that's what I always go back to. But, you know, I'm, I put that right up there. Basically, the greatest story I've ever covered, probably. But, you know, when Bobby Rahal won the Indianapolis 500 in 1986, I also predicted that because he was from Columbus. But he also uh, had a, his owner, a team owner was dying of cancer, Jim Truman. And he willed himself to basically be there for that race. And it had always been his dream to have a, his race car driver win the Indianapolis 500. And he ends up dying 11 days later. You know, you can't make this stuff up. And uh, so, yeah, it gives me chill bumps. Just you bringing it up, Matt talking about some things, which, which you know, a fighter, whether they were ready or not, and things like that, it always gives me chill bumps because it's just a reflection or retrospective on what happened that day, that, that incredible uh, afternoon in Tokyo. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it it is one of those one of those events where you do remember where you were when you heard about it. And as I say, because the world was a different place then, it almost made it more dramatic because it made it that much harder to believe because you couldn't really see it. You just heard about it. The reports came out, and then you knew that this had actually happened. And then there was just this utter desperation to be able to get to watch it. And like I said, in the UK. We had to wait for the for the VHS to come out. People have been sending me messages today with with pictures of the um, of, of the VHS case because I said we were doing this and 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 people were just kind of reminiscing about it. And, and Matt, you mentioned Madison Square Garden and, and Anthony Joshua against Andy Ruiz, and 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 that was that was seemed pretty cataclysmic at the time. But but this was just another level, wasn't it? And I mean, we we I find it hard to imagine that we'll ever see anything like it again because of the. It's about the characters and the stories, isn't it? Douglas's story heading into it and what he'd gone through in his career and, and, and who Tyson was. It's it's impossible to see something like this happening again. Yeah, I mean, we, we as you say, Andy, we were there and, and the, the AJ Ruiz one was just such a, an unbelievable night. It was from the start to finish, it, it was a great card. It was a Madison Square Garden. It had a bit of all that about it. You know, but he was, without, without, it wasn't just Andy Joshua. Every single person in that arena uh, involved in boxing was looking past Andy Ruiz. We we're all looking to the Wilder fight. That was all the talk. I mean, I remember we did that kind of in-depth chat with Anthony Joshua. I think it was on the Wednesday or the Thursday when it was, you know, all the media were there. <clears throat> I think, you know, he was talking for nearly an hour. Two questions were asked about Andy Ruiz. All the rest was about Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury. I don't care how professional you are and look we, we said you know this wasn't okay look we know Tyson when he fought Douglas there was chaos going on Anthony Joshua didn't have chaos going on he was a consummate professional he was prepared down in Miami with his full team but you're human 
complacency creeps in subconsciously when you're talking about other fights, you're looking past it. That's what happened. But, I mean, it was a huge, huge upset at the time. But I'd imagine, you know, and we talk about different eras, you say pre-internet and, you know, it was mainstream TV, wasn't it, back in the day? There weren't that many channels. And if you were on those channels and you were on the back pages of all the newspapers, you were just you were just a mainstream crossover superstar. Mike Tyson was that. You know, he was maybe the biggest star in sports at that time. And then to lose to a relatively unknown in James Buster Douglas, certainly unknown to the casual fans, certainly in the UK. I mean, I was only a kid. But I'm, I'm guessing if I'd have been this, you know, I'm guessing people in their 20s, wouldn't have been that familiar with, with Buster Douglas unless they were a hardcore boxing fan. They wouldn't have known who he was. So the casual sports fan waking up that day, hearing on the news that Mike Tyson got knocked out. I can't imagine. I, I can only imagine what that must have been like to hear. Yeah, and you know, the thing you have to remember too, in the United States, I do believe, <clears throat> it was only on, it was on HBO, which at that point was really a young, it was a cable channel. You know, not everybody, you couldn't, you couldn't roll through the channels on your television and just pick up HBO. You had to have cable, you know? So it wasn't, uh, that's what I think what made it like you're talking about, Matt, what made it more compelling was that everybody didn't have access kind of like an old fight way back in the 1900s or something where, you know, uh, uh, the great fighters in would have these great, uh, great fights and you'd read about them in the newspaper. You go, I can't believe that happened. You know, it was sort of like that. And then, and you know, I think anybody subconscious kind of, kind of tries to put themselves in that moment when in fact they weren't there at all, you know? And uh, that's, that's, that, those are the great moments in sport is when everybody uh, has a relationship to it one way or the other about it, whether they watched it or when they heard about it, it was still stunning to say the least. And as we saw what, well, we, we all saw what happened to Tyson's career after that, after that. And it was almost like that veneer of invincibility had, had gone. That cloak of invincibility was was removed from him. And all of a sudden he was fallible like every single other human being on the planet. And his travails since then, inside and outside of the ring, have been well documented. He's still with us. A lot of people wouldn't have predicted that 30 years ago. And he's going to get in the ring against Roy Jones Jr. before too long as well, which again is not exactly something that we could have predicted happening. But um, just one last one before we go then, uh, before we go then, Tim. So what are you up to? What are you up to at the minute? What are you up to these days? Well, I've, I've covered uh, Ohio State football, which is a big beat here in, in, in Ohio and Columbus. I covered it. I've covered it since 1984. And, uh, um, you know, they're part of the college football. I don't know if, how much you guys keep up with that over in the in in the UK, probably not at all. <laughs> but uh, but I retired from the Columbus Dispatch at the end of the at the end of 2018, and I'm semi-retired. But had people, you know, throwing sort of money at me to still do like a podcast. I do a podcast every week about Ohio State football and college football, and uh, and do some things for this thing called LettermanRoad.com, which I only have to work when I want to. It's a real fun thing, you know. And I, and I do radio stuff uh, with radio stations across the country almost every week about Ohio State football, talking about things like that. And then occasionally, like I do, I do a retrospective on the Buster Douglas fight. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, 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 was, I was privileged, like, like, like you just talked about, the, I was privileged to be ringside or courtside or fieldside wide, uh, fields, field uh, side uh, to some great moments in sport just for the fact I was uh, covering things in Columbus, Ohio. You know, I wasn't a, 
a national uh, reporter of scope or whatever, but people from Columbus or whatever kind of took me there. You know what I mean? I mean, with their own daring do. And I've always appreciated those moments because uh, some of them are some of the greatest in uh, sports history. Well, it's been quite a career. I hope people are throwing money at me when I'm semi-retired. I wouldn't mind people throwing money at me now, to be perfectly but, honest. But, well, uh, it's not like a strip club. Don't get me wrong, but it's okay. I don't wear a garter or anything. <laughs> Uh, that's a great image to leave us with. That's a great image to leave us with. Tim, thank, thanks so much for doing this. It's been uh, it's been great fun. We we knew we always wanted to do this fight. And and like I said, I, I kind of looked at it. I'd, I'd read The Last Great Fight by by Joe Layden, which covers this exact fight and the build-up to it and the aftermath of it. So if this has piqued your interest, then get your hands on that. The Last Great Fight. Um, and we knew we wanted to do this. And I knew also that that some of the usual suspects, if you like, weren't there. And then I just remembered, I remembered reading the book and I remember reading other stuff about it, that, that, that there was a man from the Columbus local paper who not only went, but he tipped, he tipped Buster Douglas to win. Um, actually, just, just this really is the last thing. When, when I've, you've got very little credit for that in a lot of circles, it seemed to me, because people yeah. seem to almost dismiss it and say, well, he had to say that because he was Douglas's guy. He was Douglas's paper. He was his kind of writer. But as I said before, you know, Buster Douglas took you to, 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 to Tokyo, but you are still a journalist. You're not going to put your name to something unless you actually think it can happen. And you, you knew more than people thought you knew. Yeah, well, I mean, I even, I even sort of you know, kind of told, told, told people how, why it was going to happen, you know, and that was what was interesting. I mean, like, I, like, like Matt and I were talking about a while ago, one uppercut changes everything, you know, it almost did. It almost changed everything. Uh, let's put it that way. Tyson always had the ability with one punch to change the fight, the tone of that fight. But, uh, but yeah, it's, yeah, I got kind of upset about the 42 to one thing. Cause I thought they were building it up, but, but Tim May did pick him, you know, but of course, uh, uh, Jeremy Shep's a good guy and stuff. But uh, I think they thought, like you just pointed out, the only reason I was there was because I covered uh, Buster Douglas through his career. And uh, and then, like I said, if he'd been from somewhere else, I wouldn't have been there. But uh, I could see that week what we just talked about. You could see, like Matt was talking about, focus wasn't there. That's the term more than anything else for Mike Tyson and his camp. The focus was laser sharp for Buster Douglas, his camp, and anybody who was there and was objectively looking at it could see exactly what I was seeing because I didn't have to write a story saying that this was probably going to happen. You know, uh, I could just done a preview and, uh, but yeah, uh, it was just, it was just interesting to see a local guy, a young man you'd known forever, put it all together, you know, and finally be what everybody, including his dad thought he could be. And, uh, and for one night, like I've told Buster a million times, who cares what happened after that fight? They're, they're never going to be able to take away from you that you pulled the greatest upset in boxing history, maybe in sports history, when you really look at it and uh, live with it, you know, embrace it, enjoy it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I say exactly the same thing sometimes when, when fighters, when I'm talking to them and, and they're, they're looking at things that they didn't do or, or should have done and just look at what happened because what did happen will never have not happened. And that was a hell of a thing to happen. So we'll leave it there. Tim, thanks very much. This has been great. Really, really good fun. 
enjoyed it enormously and thanks for listening everybody as usual if you can get on and give us a, a review and a rate that would be terrific we're back with another one of these next week where we will take a look at a late and very pivotal night uh, in the career of Joe Calzaghe until then take care everybody Podcast Network. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.